Hi, I'm D.W. from Houston. Hi, I'm Kristen from San Francisco. Hi, I'm Graham from Vancouver, Canada. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. It's easy. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. Yes. I'm Jesse Thorne. Lewis Black this week on the show. How did you start um, your career in theater? This was the hook was... um, they usually have a talent show in high school, you know, and usually the talent show is two old biddies in a uh, attic going through pictures, and then they someone sings a song and someone does a dance, and it's just, you know. Lewis, I don't mean to interrupt your story, but usually a talent show, I know the song and the dance part. What is the two old biddies in an attic going through pictures? <laughs> that is really... not part of a talent show. That is... Something yeah, that really that, is. You've got to remember, it's it's nineteen sixty four. It's sixty six. <laughs> you know, seriously, they'd have to, we had two ants in an attic, looking at pictures, and and that would be like the the start off point. Oh, it's like a com- It's like a sketch or something. Yeah, a little thing uh, that helped open it up. It's not actual old ladies. No, it's the young girls dressed as old ladies, which is just as horrifying. Okay, gotcha. Okay, who, who, I'm on board now. I'm back on you board. You got it? I didn't mean yeah. to, to... I thought everybody knew about two old biddies. <laughs> <laughs> it's Bullseye. First up, my interview with one of comedy's greatest grumps, Louis Black. Let's just say that the stand-up and Daily Show contributor has a really clear vision of what he wants from the world. So he struggles when the world doesn't live up to what he'd like it to be. I, I stand there, I look at it, and I go, "Is you know, this is, this is crazy. And so how do we deal with crazy? And, 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 and for a long time, I felt like part of my act, and I would say it, was, is, is that, you know, you got to remember, you know, I'm, we're not crazy, they are. And find out why Lewis Black left the theater for stand-up comedy. Then I'll talk to a musician whose work has been sampled by Public Enemy, the Beastie Boys, Wu-Tang Clan, Kanye West, and Jay-Z. And that's just the start of that. His name is Syl Johnson, and he has a simple secret. Plus, Andrew Nas will share some of his all-time favorite hip-hop tracks. Musician Annie Hart will reveal the hardcore song that changed her life. And I'll talk about a documentary that shows Coney Island at a time when it represented everything America was and everything America could be. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you know who Louis Black is, you're probably picturing him now, maybe doing stand-up, maybe on The Daily Show. He's got a wild look in his eyes. He's trembling slightly. He's on the verge of explosion. Yeah, that's our man. As a stand-up, Black's been one of America's leading voices of indignation and exasperation for 25 years or so now. For about half that time, he's been doing Back in Black on The Daily Show. No matter where his work takes him, he never fails to find something that he absolutely can't believe. Like this one thing he overheard a young woman say while he was standing in line at IHOP. She said, if it weren't for my horse, I wouldn't have spent that year in college. I'll repeat that. 
I'll repeat that because that's the kind of sentence when you hear it, your brain comes to a screeching halt. And the left-hand side of the brain looks at the right-hand side of the brain and goes, it's dark in here. And we may die. She said, if it weren't for my horse, giddy up, giddy up, let's go. I wouldn't have spent that year in college, a degree-granting institution. Don't, don't think about that sentence for more than three minutes or blood will shoot out your nose. The American medical profession doesn't know why we get an aneurysm. It's when a blood vessel bursts in our head for no apparent reason. There's a reason. Lewis and I talked last year. You know, I was thinking about how much road work you still do. Um, and I imagine it's not out of, like, pure financial necessity, although I guess I could be wrong. I don't know what your lifestyle is. Um, so it's, it's, it's not stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like a Master P thing where you have gold-plated ceilings. Yeah, or th- three wives in six different states and stuff like that. So what, uh, what do you get out of doing a gig at an art center in... Um, you know, a a state that you might not otherwise visit for, you know, 1,500 people who know you mostly from maybe The Daily Show or or whatever, when you could just be sitting at home reading the newspaper? Um, Because it's still fun and... uh... And because they still let me get away with it, and I and I kind of get to say whatever I want, and it allows me to get a lot off my chest, and uh, and because I'm as long as I feel like I'm saying something uh, either new or something that uh, I'm saying something that I said in another fashion, but have kind of honed it and and kind of made it clear. Uh, as long as I feel like I'm evolving on that's on the stage, and um, as long as people show up it's it's still uh it's still great and and really i'm i you know i i uh you know if we're not going to do you know we i had a sh- very short lived movie career and um and since the and since television seems to be elusive except for the daily show uh it's what i get to do which is great and i'm lucky because i i got a tour bus and that really makes it uh, less painful what what kind of tour bus you got? Do you have any like cool? Does it have cool features? It's got you know it's got the, the direct TV you know it's got TV it's got the, you know a satellite TV thing on it it's got a uh, you know we got a um, you know a fridge we got uh, you know, I got a wine cooler I've got uh, uh, I've got Wi-Fi I mean it's all there it's like traveling with your apartment. I like that it has a wine cooler specifically. I think that's sort of the I think that's sort of the answer to all those uh, rock and roll musicians and hip hop musicians who keep get arresting keep getting arrested for drug possession in that one like border town in Texas when they yeah. drive their tour bus through. <laughs> yeah. yeah <laughs> like, no, I, like... I just yeah, I just my my only problem is when we're trying to get the wine in and out of Canada. <laughs> <laughs> the sheriff like gets on the bus and and is, you know, turn overturning all the cushions and he just pulls, what is this a Chablis? <laughs> um you didn't start doing stand-up comedy until you were in your like mid 30s-ish. Um when you were a kid, did comedy or show business seem like a career possibility? Well, not, I mean, not when I was a kid. I, uh, it, by about the time I was 18, I became, uh, I, I kind of knew that I was going to uh, at least make a, some attempt to be involved with theater. And so theater was the way in. And uh, and really, I thought what would happen eventually is, is I'd, 
I, w- I, I thought um, as it evolved that I would write plays and, uh, and I would uh, teach theater. At, uh, you know, and so that was the way it and I, and I watched um, I watched a lot of stand-up as a kid and listened to a lot of stand-up and was always fascinated by it. And from the time I was about 21, I started getting up on stages and doing it. So I was doing it on and off. But I was doing it like a hobby, like a psychotic hobby, you know. I mean, most people have a hobby that has something outside of, you know, whatever they're doing. For some reason, it fascinated me. And it was a way in which I could, you can't get plays done. So it was a way in which I could get my writing up. The The only problem was is I had this ill-suited actor myself to kind of present the words. And uh, but it, But slowly but surely, it began to evolve and... Uh, and I got very comfortable on stage. And then, uh, and then really it was partly uh, financial and partly the fact that I kind of realized that uh, after being in theater that long that really I was, I'd chosen a career in which, uh, in which really uh, your highest hopes was to end up in some sort of a theater somewhere, which was generally the equivalent in um, much of the time, as I found out, like being in a abusive orphanage. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, wow, I, you know, and, but meanwhile, drunks who ran comedy clubs really liked me. And these people who didn't know me from Adam and they just were kind of happy-go-lucky and who, who I had spent really, you know, no serious kind of time except getting up on stages and bars uh, as opposed to going to like drama school and the rest of it and getting the credentials together that this group of drunks accepted me. And so I went with the drunks. It seems like comedy was going through really big changes at that time too. You know, I mean, if you look at a if you look at a, a routine by, you know, Richard Pryor or George Carlin, commonly considered to be, you know, two of the top three or so greatest stand-up comedians of all time, in 1965, and look at them, look at a picture or a routine of them in 1969, they are two completely different things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, that was, it was, and then there was also uh, a a magazine that uh, really never gets its true due, which is the magazine called The Realist, which was published by a guy named Paul Krasner, um, who was like the zelig of the, uh, of the, of the new left. He showed up everywhere. He was friends with everybody and, uh, and published this magazine that was just, uh, a, 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 one, one of the best of, the, of satirical magazines I've ever read in my life. I started reading it when I was 15. It was astonishing. What did your folks think of all of this when they sent you off to college and, um, you know, the world changed while you were away at school? Well, my, I was lucky because my folks were uh, really, uh, you know, my mother would wander around while Walter Cronkite was on, bellowing at the top of her lungs. <laughs> and uh, screaming at the TV, and the and so as a result, we really never had good food in the house. And uh, <laughs> she was she's too busy attacking things. But she was like a, she was involved in the. This is interesting. She was involved in the. There's a thing called the 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 women's strike for peace, and um, I think that's something along those lines. And uh, and uh, it, it, against the war in Vietnam, my father meantime was building sea mines. Uh, which is the the thing that you put in your harbor to protect it from incoming boats? You know, like uh, the 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 spiky bald thing that uh, that floats in the water and and knocks off big ships. Well, 
uh, he was doing that. He, he turns to my mother. He goes, you know, you're yelling and screaming about this, but you really don't know. You didn't read the – you haven't read enough to tell me you know that this war is, again, you know, really uh, illegal. And uh, so my father's taking the legality thing. My mother's taking the immoral thing. So he picks up. He's the only man I know. We based this war on the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, He's in, which is from the Geneva Accords of 1956, like 60-something. He picks up. He goes out and gets the, uh, the Geneva Accords. Who reads the Geneva Accords? It'd be like reading the World, World Health Organization manual for last year. So he's got this 60-page book. I looked at it. It was like, are you kidding me? He sat there for two weeks and read it and put the book down and said, "It's the war. there's nothing here uh, to base this war on. There's nothing there. This is an illegal war. And uh, so when they, they actually mined Haiphong Harbor and used sea mines as an offensive weapon as opposed to a defensive weapon, and my father at that point said, that's it, I'm done, and uh, retired from government service. And, and apprentice to a, a guy who made stained glass. It's an extraordinary. I just it's still it's extraordinary what I what I tell it. It's pretty amazing. It must have been a great inspiration to you when you weren't sure whether you should do something that you thought was important or whether you should do something uh, that might be easier. Yeah, no, it was a huge. You know, I mean, he did it at a time when I'm in. I'm finishing up college, and my brother is just it's literally in his second year of school. I'm going, wow, that takes, you know, a lot of nerve, and uh, and we we managed, and uh, and and it was really uh, it's always been inspiration to me. And he went and did what he wanted to do when he was a kid, which was, uh, you know, he. He had a design mind, but he really wanted to he wanted to paint and sketch. And so he went from being a um, uh, he, from studying stained glass to making stained glass to studying uh, taking uh, art school courses at the local community college and then painted for 25 years. And uh, the last special I did, we used a three-dimensional um, uh, the set was a three-dimensional projection, really, of his uh, of a painting of his, and we're hopefully going to use another painting as the background this time. You decided that you were going to go into theater, and you ended up in an uh, at the Yale School of Drama studying playwriting. Um, it was a uh, it wasn't is you know one of the most prestigious drama schools in the country. Um, what was your experience like there? Um, it, uh, horrible. <laughs> it, was, it was one of the, I would say, one of the worst experiences of my life. I, uh, <laughs> I really, um, I, I've described it this way, but I, I it, 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 but uh, it's that I went, I went off to the Yale School of Drama the way, thinking, you know, that it would be this idealistic and wonderful place where, you know, I would be nurtured, you know. They would suckle my artistry, and uh, and um, you know, but much the same way that many went to you know Vietnam, thinking you know, the, the, with that idealistic idea. And boy, within like six weeks, I was like, you, somebody's got to be kidding me, you know, because it was like a trauma center. They, it was at a time in which I think it was the the curve of the teaching of arts, especially theater in this country, was being taught by people 
who were really bitter they didn't have careers and, and proceeded to take it out on the students. Sexual harassment wasn't a word, you know? And uh, so this guy, the, the voice teacher there, there's a, there's a woman in my uh, class who has really a very voluminous set of breasts. They're magnificent, I have to say. And uh, he does, he, she comes to me one day and is upset because the, the guy, um, uh, the speech teacher, uh, did, did a vocal exercise. Everybody else had, had left the room. He said he wanted to show her vocal exercise where he sat on her breasts. And, uh, and I would have, this stuff would occur literally about every three weeks, something that I thought was just off the charts wrong, and I would have to go in to the dean of students and go, what is the matter with you people? Is somebody going to control these people? And the same thing was happening, not so much with me, but in terms of... Uh, we were really uh, kind of batted around. What happened when you when you spoke up about stuff like that? They tried to throw me out of school my first year. That was what happened, and uh, and because I was constantly in there, and I was constantly, you know, they would say we're going to do this, and I said, well, you know, I'm not leaving because uh, the options were few and far between, and I really liked the writers I was working with and the actors and. Really, the, the, the students themselves is really where my, and, and some of the teachers were inspirational, and I didn't really have anywhere else to go. And I came there, and I'd spent the money, and let's play ball and quit being. So I literally said to him, go ahead and throw me out of school, and I'll go to the New York Times. Because this is, you can't be doing this. It seems like you, um, you know, in, in your later work as well, have a really clear vision of uh, what you want from the world and struggle to struggle to figure out what to do when the world doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't live up to what you'd like it to be. Um, I mean, that sounds a little bit more, um, the way I put that sounds a little bit more like it's a, a your problem and not of the world's problem. No, no, but I think it's a very good way to describe what I do on stage. I think. I mean, I really do. I, I, I stand there, I look at it, and I go, "Is you know, this is, this is crazy. And so how do we deal with crazy? And, 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 and for a long time I felt like part of my act, and I would say it was this, is that, you know, uh, you know, um, you got to remember, you know, I'm. We're not crazy; they are. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is comedian Lewis Black. You might know him from his Daily Show segment, Back in Black. You know, theater is a very collaborative thing, um, and even even playwriting, which is maybe the least collaborative of the elements of theater, is still relatively collaborative. You know, compared to say making a painting. Yes. And I wonder if you, as a young man, felt like you could trust other people not to mess your stuff up. Yeah, I did. And also I knew uh, a lot of the people I was working with. It took me a little time to realize that uh, you could end up in a room with uh, four actors, let's say, and one of those actors um, might have been better suited rather than uh, working in the theater, but spending a lot more time in an outpatient clinic. <laughs> but that came later. But uh, I really trusted actors because uh, b because since I really did not have, 
I think that a, a, a really, you know, that I never, here's unbelievable. I go through all of that schooling, and at no point, at no point was plot, the idea of plot taught. So I was always kind of, and I, I, and I think that's awful. And the reason I think it's awful is, is because in order to really kind of, um, if you're going to, if you're going to do something that's different, you ought to know what it is that was the mainstay. And, uh, so, uh, so I really relied on, uh, my actors to help me in terms of it because I, I thought that I really never really got a I didn't get a grasp of it. I, I remember taking a fiction writing class in college and the professor uh, I guess she was she may have been a lecturer or something like that she said you know everything comes from character and I I remember and absolutely every fictional work comes from character I raised my I remember raising my hand and being like well what about like a like a Michael Crichton book like those don't even really have characters; they just have st- cool stuff that happens. <laughs> like I'm pretty sure Michael Crichton starts by thinking of d- what if dinosaurs came back from DNA, and then he writes Jurassic Park, and that's definitely a book because I read it when I was 12, and um, she like wouldn't acknowledge the existence of Jurassic Park. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not saying it's as good a book as some other book, but it exists. It is a real book. <laughs> And it is. I mean, plot's important. It's what you hang, you know, it's in, in, and especially, I think, in terms of, of theater, because it's, uh, you have to suspend disbelief, for God's sake. And you can't do that with just, you know, some sort of strange, someone dressed in a duck costume coming out, appearing in front of a nine-year-old boy in their bedroom for no apparent reason, and he doesn't have a fever, and then the duck goes away, and you don't see the duck for the next two acts. I mean, that kind of crap. Because uh, everybody's just going to be sitting there. What happened to that duck? Exactly. And the two old biddies. It's <laughs> yeah. all the same boat. So were you able to extend the same trust um, with sort of your voice and vision that you could extend to your direct collaborators to you know, folks who could build your career, you know, like powerful people in theater or show business? I've been, uh, I'm not so good with authority. (laughs) (laughs) It's never been my strongest suit. I mean, I've, I've really, uh, I, I, I didn't trust, uh, because, uh, I, I, usually I didn't think they really, a lot of them, I don't think, um, uh, I I knew people who'd done more uh, toward understanding their craft than the people in charge of the craft, or the ones who were you know standing in front of the gates. I went through this a lot. I told a lot of people to, uh, you know, not a lot, but enough that it didn't it didn't help. I told a, a, a few a few of them to f- off. Can Can you give me an example of a of a time that, um someone with power maybe ex- extended their hand to you and, and you slapped it away? Well, um, the, uh, it, it, the, um, it, there was two instances. One is in, in theater that I was uh, dealing with um, uh, a guy who was, who was running a, the- a, a nice theater that has since gone on to be bigger and better things. And uh, he lost my play twice. And then asked for it the third time, and that's when I told him, 
you know, to, to go screw himself. So there was that instance. I mean, it's like, really, we're going to do this again? And, uh, but the, the, one of the most intriguing, and this will give you an idea just how stupid I am, my friend and I, uh, uh, John Bowman, uh, who, who's my opening act, he and I wrote a, uh, a kind of a parody of horror films uh, in the fashion as airplane was to airport. So this is, and we're years ahead of this kind of thing. No, no one has written any of those things. Nobody. Uh, you know, there's, there's nothing really like this. And uh, we, we, uh, his, his uh, manager uh, gets it somehow to Columbia Pictures, and they have a meeting with us in New York. And the guy sits down. Now, all we wanted to do was to go up to Michigan and film it there, and we wanted a million dollars, and that was it. You know, we wanted to do an independent film with a bunch of actors we knew in New York, all of whom gone on to have kind of major careers. And some had already done really big things, like uh, Paul McCrane, who was already in fame, Mark Metcalf, who was already Needamiter. So we had names and stuff. So we were, And we sat there, and, and the guy goes, um, how would you like, uh, you know, I just love this script. How would you like Bill Murray to star in it? And, and John and I looked at each other. We don't have a dime. And we looked at each other and went, well, nah. Nah, that, no. <laughs> no. Um, I mean, we really like Bill Murray. It's just we, that isn't really the way we want to go. What about John Candy? No. Uh, what about Chevy Chase? Nah. We went, went through everybody. We turned down everybody. Like morons. Like we were going to get this money and just go do this film. I mean, instead of just anyone with any intent, it wasn't like it was an art film. It wasn't like there was some, this is an important message I must get across to people. I've spent 30 years of my life devoting myself to this. No, this was like a goofy horror film. And we just thought, no, it won't be as good. (laughs) They're also not asking you to cast, you know, Middle-aged Jerry Lewis or something like that. Oh, no, no. This is <laughs> These really... are all brilliant people. That you no, this have. is really stupid, but this is what we thought. As soon as you put a name above the title, then the movie is going to be skewed in another way. And we just really thought we had it. It's really sad. It's pathetic. <laughs> Lewis Black, family comedian? Yep. I mean, that's what he thinks. Hear the rest of our conversation after a break. You're listening to Bullseye. From MaximumFun.org and NPR. Every Wednesday, 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 Maximum Fun presents Lady to Lady, a comedy podcast with Chess the Tower Marker, Brawlin' Brandy Posey, and Barbara Mayday Gray. Listen as they throw down with comedy heavyweights like Aisha Tyler, Retta, Kate Flannery, and more. These ladies will make you laugh so hard you will literally explode. So go to MaximumFun.org or iTunes and download Lady to Lady before it's too late. Wait, where's the... Where's the music? What happened? My throat hurts. I don't know what to do. Should we just get coffee? Okay. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to comedian Louis Black. Do you find uh, comedy, especially when you're working the road, to be lonely? Not um, at times, but not what people think because uh, I've been around, you know, I've, I've been touring for about 25 years, so... First off, I have uh, friends who live in a lot of the major cities that I show up in, so I get to see them. Um, and then when you kind of roll around the country that much, um, 
you actually start to know people and places. And I, I travel with, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, John Bowman, who is, I've known forever, and he's my opening act, uh, my tour manager. And, uh, and we sell. I've got my uh, guy I went to high school with who retired is selling my merchandise. <laughs> so it's, you know, we've got this small group, and we're only out for four days. Uh, and then come back, and uh, I come back home for three. So it's, it's it, I, I really am lucky in the in the way in which I tour. I mean, but even when I was touring as uh, uh, initially and going to clubs, I, I just felt so lucky to be. Uh, you know, I enjoyed it. I hadn't seen the country. Um, you know, I did it for a number of years before I felt like, uh, oh, you know, I'm hitting a wall. I'm hitting kind of the ceiling, and I need to go further. What's a place you got to see that? really showed you a lot that you that you really liked that you might not have expected um uh, bismarck north dakota i mean it's not like exceptionally beautiful but uh, that audience and partly because it's bismarck there's certain places you show up in the country they are so thrilled that you showed up that you came to see them that they just go nuts it's like he came, he actually came all this way. And the, the audience response is like, it's much like the only other thing that was different was playing in front of the troops. It's a, uh, but it's a similar feeling where really they're like in some outpost and they, and they just are, you know, and nobody goes, you know, there's not a lot of people who tour through there. So, you know, that's really where it, 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 you know, I said I would do a special out of Bismarck if I could. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian Louis Black. When you perform on stage, Louis, you are um, physically shaking, even at your quietest. And I found myself wondering if it was a tremor, uh, an affectation, uh, or just a physical embodiment of you preparing for the the boiling over that will happen in you know two hundred and forty seconds. <laughs> it's actually it is in part a tremor that is accentuated by the fact that I kind of um, push it. I mean, I, I you know I'm, I'm pushing myself out there, and I'm you know and I'm doing my I'm 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 shaking. And uh, a lot of it, I think, is in terms of the fact that um, even though I don't feel nervous on stage, I still feel that nervousness goes somewhere. So I used to, when I started, um, would, would say I would never had a pause. I just talked completely, as quickly as humanly possible to make sure that there was no time in which somebody could heckle me. And it was, the, and it really became the way in which I dealt with my nervousness, and and then I think a bit of the of the of the shaking in part is dealing, I'm you know it, it is it maybe in part with dealing with the nervousness, but it all be kind of just and it all grew out organically. I mean, I didn't think about any of this. It just because I didn't even know I was pointing my fingers until I was. Uh, you know, in doing a, a, a show in a club and uh, about five or six years after being on the road and these folks were coming up the elevator, I'm going down the uh, the escalator, I'm going down and they're p- doing this thing and pointing at me. And I turned to my friend, friends and said, what's that about? And they said, well, you do that on stage. 
I went, well, I, I don't, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I find I, I I did used to do a bit on this show long ago that later moved to my comedy show, um, where I had to find things in the world that bothered me, and I found that. Um, while it was easy to find 10 sort of hobby horses to pick on, um, after a while I s- realized I was picking on targets that I was less sincerely passionate about, and <laughs> and it started to become exhausting. <laughs> and I wonder how, how, close, uh, how closely do you have to pay attention to your life to find things to, that upset you but also it doesn't make you f- just feel like a jerk for talking about it on stage. <laughs> um, it's it, a lot of, a lot of, more of it comes now from uh, this, uh, the, the uh, I mean, it's, we got, I go in a circle, we do, you know, and now we're discussing, I've discussed gun control like in three, gun regulation in, you know, three periods of my time as a comic. I mean, it, we just keep coming back to the same crap. That's the hard part. It's like, really, we got to go through this again. Really, now we're going to discuss. Uh, we're going to discuss immigration. Now we're going to discuss. I mean, you know, health care again. You know, we went through it with Hillary. And now we're going to discuss it again, and they won't stop discussing it. And it's none of it is to any end. None of it. It's just to, for people to yell about it. And uh, that's where I find it weird is trying to find out, you know, where I fit within it. And, and, and the tough, I mean, where I get crazy in, is that my feeling is, is that when I'm on stage, I've got to be crazier than the world around me. And I have to say, this the, the last two or three years, they're, they're pushing my envelope. <laughs> I, I want to play a clip from uh, your segment, Back in Black on The Daily Show, which you have been doing now for 16 years. Yeah. Um, and in this segment, you are talking about um, it'll start with a news report. This is this aired a couple of months ago, right around the time that the NSA leak stuff was coming out, and um, it, it starts with a news report that describes a different kind of data mining uh, that goes, uh, <laughs> and it's a kind of data mining that that might allow a person's brain or brain power or brain essence to live forever. Some 30 years from now, we might be living the lives of James Cameron's avatars. That's the dream of Russian multimillionaire Dmitry Itzkov. The 2045 initiative is striving to prolong life by eventually uploading the human brain into holograms or androids. Well, that's really cool until you think about it. (laughs) Now, who decided this crappy generation is the one that deserves to live forever? If this avatar technology existed 80 years ago, there'd be a bunch of giant blue racists running around, and I'm pretty sure Avatar Strom Thurmond wouldn't be okay with President Obama. To me, the fact that we all eventually drop dead is not a bug. It's a feature. It's the only way we rid our society of old ass. Um, 
I as I was watching as I was watching your most recent special, I was struck by the fact that you know they usually when they do crowd shots in comedy specials, they're looking for two things. One is very attractive people. Um, and one is a sort of representation of ethnic diversity, and they sort of leave it at that. And in your special, they panned across a couple of groups of elderly people, like people who appear to be sincerely elderly, like in their mid to late 70s or possibly early 80s. And I thought, wow, like one of the powers that you bring to the stage is... um, you know, you've lived a life in a way that uh, even someone who's 15 or 20 years older than you can respect, like, this guy really has something to say, which isn't something that you could say of even a great comedian who's 35. Well, I'm, I'm, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but what's weird, I mean, the weirdest thing to me is is that uh, that I'm, I really am a... a I'm a family comic. I, I have a. I, I will have people show up. I'll have three generations show up, of the same family, or I will always have a kid will come up to me and say that their father loves me, or their mother loves me, or the mother will come up and say, "I've got to. Will you take a picture so I can send it to my son?" It's bizarre. It's really. It's. I consider that my. If I have. If I've accomplished something, that's. Really, the thing I'm um, I'm most proud of. Well, Lewis, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was great to have the chance to talk to you. Well, it was really great to talk to you. Seriously, that was a pleasure, and I appreciate it. Lewis Black. He's out on tour all this summer and fall. You can find his tour dates at lewisblack.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week on our show, we're joined by one of our favorite critics to recommend stuff that's worth your time. And uh, this week, we get a couple of all-time favorites from our hip-hop critic, Andrew Nas. Hey, Andrew. How's it going? Hey, Jesse. So your first pick is by two of my favorite rappers, DJ Quick with a guest verse from Ludacris. The song's called Pacific Coast Remix, and it's off DJ Quick's 2005 album, Trauma. Well, my baby mama is because she see having kids as a tool for getting chips. That's with it without the chips. She told my lawyer she's a nurse, but she can't spell school. Quite frankly, she's up for the fool. Idiot. Welcome to the city where you might see things like real threats, fake breasts, negativity hangs over the city like a puppet string pulling you up. You think they love you to the director yells cut. Now they're packing you with ice and zipping you up. So I think, uh, like a lot of DJ Quick songs, it has what you might call a barbecue beat. But DJ Quick, later in his career, in the past uh, five and ten years, has been a lot more comfortable getting into personal and, and relatively dark subjects. I think that's one of the interesting things about this song. I think, on the whole, he was kind of trying to say a lot about L.A. You, you know, everybody always thinks of the the glamour and, you know, the sunniness and all that. But, you know, Quick came from a very dark side of L.A. culture, and I... I think maybe he glorified that a little bit 
on his early releases, but I, you know, with this one, he just kind of looked around and was like, man, this is a mess. Like, as nice as everything looks out here, you know, it's just a mess. Let's talk about uh, one of the early classics of um, avant-garde hip-hop. This song is called Beat Bop. It's from 1983. It's by Ramel Z and K-Rob. This is the mellow they call the rare well The rocks are with the rhythm that a shock is spell When the shake up cake the witch up in the morning Gotta wear with the rhythm like a number one groaning MC quick just to make your peanut butter Shock with the rhythm I'm a number one undercover Bring it up just shake it up rodeo Bring it up just shake it up rodeo I'm the melody down with the funky sound Like it makes you break with my diamond studded crown Just for making you dip like a little bit of dive like a so one thing that I think people forget about the history of hip-hop is that in the early 1980s especially, there was a real uptown, downtown connection in the hip-hop world with graffiti artists showing at galleries and, you know, Debbie Harry rapping and all of that stuff. And um, this record is, is, I think, sort of a reflection of that confluence of worlds, as well as, in Ramelzy, just a, a totally distinctive, one-of-a-kind hip-hop figure. Yeah, definitely. Um, Ramelzy, I think, was kind of representative of this sort of 80s hip-hop renaissance man that, uh, I mean, Ramel Z was a rapper, you know, he was a visual artist, he was a, he was an actor sometimes, he, I mean, he's just a fascinating, fascinating figure, and he was also one of the great hip-hop artists where you weren't sure if he was completely brilliant or completely insane, which, I mean, to me, that's, that's kind of the mark of a great hip-hop artist, like, you don't, you, you know, absolute sanity is not does not often result in great hip hop. <laughs> maybe maybe I'm speaking to my personal preference, where I, I just like people who can toe that line between, you know, where, where you don't really know how, how far off the deep end they are. Andrew Nas uh, is the uh, uh, blogger behind Cocaine Blunts and the great Tumblr, Tumblin' Herb. He's also a columnist at Pitchfork and writes for numerous other music magazines. His recommendations this week, Ramel Z and K-Rob's Beat Bop from 1983 and DJ Quick featuring Ludacris, Pacific Coast Remix. Uh, from DJ Quick's album, Trauma. Thanks, Andrew. It's Bullseye, I'm Jesse Thorne. RFR Simone is a group of three women. They use keyboards to create a dreamy kind of indie pop. This past fall, they put out an album called Move in Spectrums. My name is Annie, and I play in the band of Voix Simone. Annie Hart's one-third of the group. As a kid, Annie didn't feel like she belonged. 
I hated where I grew up so much. Long Island is suburbia and I was constantly being made fun of by people at my school for wanting to do things that, that were not going to the mall. She wanted to do something creative. Do my own zine or, you know, make a video at our friend's house. And I was so belittled for that. It turns out that there were people in her neighborhood with similar interests. She just hadn't met them yet. The song that changed Annie Hart's life is New Song by the Long Island hardcore band Silent Majority. She heard it when a friend gave her a mixtape. At the time, I was listening to Green Day a lot. There was, you know... Dookie was on repeat. And I took the tape home and I played it in my bedroom. And I played the tape so much that the tape literally broke and I had have to tape it together with scotch tape. I listened to that song so many times. And, and then I went back to the music store where my friend had bought the 7-inch, bought the 7-inch, bought the 7-inch again at a concert and still have them both. I love this guitar tone perfect amount of distortion. I wish that you could see how excited all the kids on Long Island would get when this song came on in the set. Everybody would just be going totally bonkers. Like in this section, there was a lot of microphone sharing and microphone passing around, so they would just sing along. There's also this really catchy element to this song. It's got so many pop hooks in it. Here's your emo breakdown. Not only was it politically charged, it's about the Gulf War. He brings it back to not being able to cope with things and having that personal aspect to it. Like, I struggle and I strive to get these knots out of my life, which I think is such a great lyric, which any human, but especially a teenager, can really relate to. It really just tore my world apart that these people from Long Island could make such a politically charged song and then way beyond that the whole idea of this hardcore scene and punk scene existing in the underground of this world that I had always felt put me down for being creative break it down I recently re-listened to this song, and this is kind of got like that Taylor Swift formula of just repeating the chorus. Variations on a verse, lyrically, and then just keep going with the chorus. Here it comes again. I think before I heard this song, I felt like I was floating and I felt like I didn't belong. And after I heard this song, and especially after I started going to this band's concerts, I felt like I finally belonged somewhere. It gave me such a sense of identity within this community. It definitely planted the seeds for our band too. I think 
I was extremely motivated by the the DIY hardcore ethic. Everything that goes along with the punk and hardcore world was so refreshing to me. It felt like I had fallen into a world that I belonged in and that could support free thinking and DIY ideals. It was like everything I had ever thought, all these other people who were secretly living around me had the same thoughts. I felt like a fish in water finally, and it was such a relief for me. Annie Hart talking about the song that changed her life, new song by Silent Majority. Annie Hart's a member of Au Revoir, Simone. The band's latest album is called Move in Spectrums. What's up? My name is Jasper Red, co-host of The Goose Down, along with the lovely Kimberly Clark, and we want to invite you into the comfort and groove of our podcast that encompasses the arts and entertainment. You can check us out at MaximumFun.org, also available on iTunes. See ya! It's Bullseye, I'm Jesse Thorne. When I interviewed Syl Johnson, I said he didn't have any smash hits, And to be honest, he got kind of angry at me for saying that. But the truth is that none of them are the kind of iconic songs that you'd recognize right away. He's sort of in the liminal space between being a legend of soul music and being a footnote. Actually, when we started looking him up before this interview, a few articles said he was dead. He's not, not at all. He's very much alive and kicking. In fact, there's a documentary about him in the works. A few years ago, he released a huge box set. One of the most interesting things about Sills' discography is how much it's been sampled. This song's the leader of the pack, one of the most sampled songs in the history of hip-hop, Different Strokes. Bill Johnson, it is it is such a joy to have you on Bullseye. Thank you for coming on the show. I, I want to talk about your early life before you were even a recording artist. Mm-hmm. Um, how old were you when you moved from the South to Chicago? Uh, about I think about twelve years old. What this is uh, this would have been if you were if you were twelve. This would have been uh, l- late forties, beginning of the nineteen fifties when you were going through your adolescence. Yeah, 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 yeah. What what kind of music did you like to listen to? All in one from Little Walter. And Elmo Jam. Get up in the morning and I believe I trust my broom. I'm getting up soon in the morning. I believe I trust my broom. That was one of my favorites. And Muddy Waters. Muddy Waters, what was he singing? I think it was maybe 40 days. Oh, 
Those are some of the songs I remember. Your singing at the very beginning of your career actually reminded me a lot of Jackie Wilson. Mm, yes. And later on, in the, up in the, in the mid to upper 60s, I got a chance to travel with him with my band. And uh, he was fascinating. He was an amazing mm-hmm. performer. I mean, the, yes. the passion of the right. man. Right, 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 right. I think that's where I got my little scream from on Sergeant Tim and Different Strokes. <laughs> Jackie Wilson. By the time you started recording in the late 1950s, early 1960s, uh-huh. straight blues music wasn't really selling a lot of records, you know? No. It, was, it was not the thing, and the, the sort of l- late 60s revival of blues was, was pretty far away. Mm-hmm. So, but you can still hear that, you can still hear that rawness of Chicago blues in, in your vocals, even in those early 60s recordings when everybody else w- who was making soul music was trying to be kind of, you know, trying to be as sophisticated as possible. Right. Um, and I wonder if I wonder if that was, you know, if that was something you were thinking about, that, that you wanted to retain a little bit of that that grit. Uh, somewhat, but uh, I think it was just my style. But I wanted to hold on to the roots, you know. From uh, I mean, I, I put rhythm to the blues, and I, I, st- I studied a little music, and then I found out how different chord changes, like, you know. I took a song called Teardrops, and there, uh, I used the blues changes, but I kind of switched them around, and I used the relative minor. producing most of your records in the 60s as as well as being the vocalist, right? All of them. I want to play your song, Come On Sakatumi, that was, um, uh, that you alluded to. Tell me a little bit about writing and recording this record. Okay, so now, there you go again. I used the uh, blues chords and I made the, uh, the main chord a minor instead of just a regular triad a major chord so that's that was the difference and put a funky groove to it instead of putting the balloon to them to do 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 i put that's why the hip-hoppers like my stuff so much you know they're sampling me as we speak It's Bullseye, I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Syl Johnson, the prolific, Grammy-nominated soul singer. A huge box set of his work was released last year called Complete Mythology. I want to play 
Is it because I'm black, which you recorded at the end of the 1960s? Mm-hmm. Wow, what a song being sampled by hundreds of people right now. The dark brown shades of my skin only add color to my tears. Splash against my hollow bones That rocks my soul Looking back over my false dreams That I once knew Wondering why my dreams never came true Is it because I'm black? Uh-huh. Somebody tell me what can I do? Oh Lord. Oh something is holding me back. Uh-huh. Is it because I'm black? Yeah. In this world of no this is a, I mean, it's, it's, an, it's an absolutely beautiful tune. Well, thank you. This song didn't come out in, in 1972 when um, everyone was cutting, you know, so-called message records. It was, frankly, before everyone was doing that. Well, I would say, uh, uh, yeah, they cut uh, militant-type songs, and uh, I... I is it because I'm black is like a mirror? Uh, is it because I'm black is like, you can say, is it because I was this or because they were Jews and, and Hitler was also mean to them? Or is it because I was, a, she's a female and she made, you make more? You know, that's the type of meaning to that song. It wasn't militant, so I escaped from trying to be a militant guy because at the time, I really played for um, the different races of people, especially white folks in Chicago. The song's very sad. It's, it sounds sad. Yeah. So I'm like, uh, I thought I was like an actor at the time with my vocals and my, my interference to get my point across. Holding me back. Uh-huh. I wonder, is it because I'm black? Oh, somebody tell me what can I do? Will I survive or will I die? You had you had, had an offer from Willie Mitchell to sign with High Records in the late 60s that didn't come through. Right. Tell me about that before we before we talk about the one that did. Oh, boy. They all made me a, a big offer. And I sort of like drug my feet on it. And when I wanted to accept it, I was coming from New Orleans. I came through, and he said, well, we made another deal at the time. And we signed a young guy by the name of Al Green. So he wouldn't make that same offer no more, and I passed it up. 
at the time you had gone through with Twilight and Twinite Records, which was your label through most of the 60s, it, it seems like a, a kind of extended period of real difficulty with a business partner who ended up getting in payola trouble and put a secretary in charge of the label. Right. And... Oh, you know about that, right? So when you did sign with uh, Willie Mitchell and High Records, it must have been a big decision. I mean, it's a it, it's a big transition one way or the other. I went. I should have gone with the Jerry Wexler. He wanted me to come and and uh, record with Atlantic. I'm surprised to hear you say that. I've heard you say that you thought it was a mistake to sign with High. And, it was. And, so tell me why. Well, I mean, look, the, the focus was Al Green, man. Right. You couldn't focus on me, and uh, it was just that simple. At the time, I had a pretty big hit on Take Me to the River. Otherwise, I wouldn't have went on American Bandstand and Soul Train and singing with Dick Clark and uh, Don Cornelius. It was a big hit. Well, let's take a listen to Take Me to the River by my guest, Syl Johnson. Okay. particular song, Willie Mitchell called me at Cunard International Hotel in London, England. He said, I wrote a song for you. And I said, oh yeah? So I was a little reluctant. <laughs> okay. I said, okay. He said, yeah, it's a smash, man. And the uh, he said, I, I was coming in two weeks home. He said, well, I'm going to send it on over to your house. So he sent it over and my wife pulled it out and we listened to it. And she took a, a, a tablet, a, a calendar, and she wrote across the calendar when first time she heard it, smash, total smash. You have a lot of music in your family as well. Um, yeah, that's right. Not not least of whom is your daughter Selena. When I when I had a music radio show, I used to play her records a lot. Thank you. When she started singing seriously, mm -hmm. did you want her to go into the music industry? No. Tell me why not. Ah, oh, man, a young girl got to go through the door, man. The, the security guard, the NR man. The head of the country, company, uh, I mean, you know, this is an abusive business. That's what I thought. And uh, she said, no, I'm going to sing. See, I will love you till the day I die, but never. 
right now she's amazing. Uh, she's doing an amazing job. I'm uh, for this British company. I'm producing an old school Rebirth of Soul album on her. <laughs> I can't reveal the songs, but oh, it's awesome. Well, so I, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on our show. It was really a pleasure to have you. Well, man, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Sill Johnson. A box set of his work was released last year. It's called Complete Mythology. It's available from the Numero Group. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We like to close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. So at the end of the 19th century, American culture was caught in between. It wasn't an agrarian country anymore, but it wasn't quite an urban one. Cinema brought us a depiction of reality that was somehow more vivid than reality itself. Electricity was turning night into day. The scientific process was just starting to be widely followed, and the knowledge it gave us was just starting to be codified and classified. It was only just occurring to fiction writers that they didn't need to present their novels in the form of a letter or a memoir. Everything was on the line between old and new, real and false, one thing or another. It was a world of liminality. No place boomed in this time of in-betweenness like Coney Island. It was the nature of going to Coney Island that you would encounter strangeness. You would encounter the unencounterable. It was marvelous. I just watched Rick Burns' documentary about that place in time again. It's just called Coney Island. Every time I see it, I find myself newly transported to this moment and location where everything could be anything. What was Coney Island early in the century when it was truly something magical? What could you find? Well, for one thing, there was a hotel shaped like an elephant. You could sleep in the trunk, the body, or the thigh. There were rich people and poor people playing together without distinction for maybe the first time in American history. There were premature babies in incubators, the first of their kind, on display. There were recreations of famous disasters. The Great Chicago Fire burned every night with real flames and fake ones intermingling. There were 450 movies playing at any given time. There were roller coasters, first in the form of mechanical horse rides, the steeplechase, then in more abstract, machine-like forms. There were hucksters, barkers, and con men of every stripe. It was a display of everything America was and 
everything America might be. Scary, exciting, amazing, scientific, artistic, true, false. Like one of its great attractions, it was a dreamland. It was a waking dream. These days are clear-eyed and hardened. The future seems kind of like a threat, and there's not much reason to visit the space in between. But I'd say you should take an hour out to watch Coney Island and remember what America was like before you can remember. That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. Show's produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Maria Spertolozzi. Thanks to Chris Barube for e- editing this week's program. Thanks to the Go team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. Our interstitial music is provided to us by Mr. Dan Wally. All previous episodes of this show are free, ready, and waiting for you to download them. Just go to our website, MaximumFun.org. I guess that's about it. Just remember... All great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.